truth is, this morning we're going to look at both passages of Scripture. So our Old Testament passage is indeed talking about um, the worship of the Israelites of the Canaanite gods. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 6 through 18. So I'd like to follow along or just listen. In the ninth year of Hosea, who was the king of Israel, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree, and there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes, in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, that I might, and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So as we read this sobering passage from God's word, we're going we're to think about it, and let's come to the Lord together. Uh, most gracious Father, you give us your truth, you give us warnings that even now we should use these to regard our own selves, to examine ourselves for faithfulness, for obedience, for repentance. So Lord, grant us those graces of your salvation as we examine your word this morning. We thank you and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that Old Testament passage this morning was quite long. It, was, um, it referenced a number of these ancient gods uh, of, the, of the Canaanites that Israel ended up worshiping. But do you ever wonder why? People chose to worship false gods rather than Jehovah. And I'm going to use the term Jehovah from time to time. Um, I know that's an old King James Bible type of way of saying the, the covenant name of the Lord God. 
Um, but to my ears, that just sounds more majestic. So I'm going to use that term from time to time. Um, so who were some of these false gods anyway? It's in the passage here. Um, we see the name Baal. Okay, that means Lord, literally, in that language. And was specifically referring to Baal Hadad, the storm god. We see the name Asherah, who was the goddess of the deep. Pillars or poles were set up to worship her. There's Molech or Milcom, who's the god of fire, and we see that reference when um, the Israelites burned their sons and daughters. They were worshiping Molech. There's Dagon, the uh, god of crop fertility, as mentioned there. And there's also um, another god of fertility. There were quite a few in the ancient Canaanite religions. Um, for example, uh, Api, who was the Egyptian bull god of uh, fertility. So, so why would you want to worship all these false gods? Why, would, why was that attractive? And, and just like when I showed the kids the remote control, it was a method of control for them. It was a method of getting what they wanted. So that worship of these false gods is all very practical, all very pragmatic. So let's look at Baal Hadad, the storm god, for example. If you lived in the Canaanite high country, you didn't have many streams to get water from. And digging a well, you had a distance to get down to the water table. So most of your water was going to be found by capturing rainwater in cisterns and pots and things, big, big barrels, so that you could have water for yourself and water for your herds. So if you worship Baal Hadad in the right way, following the right worship, worship ritual, then you appeased and satisfied him, and you therefore obligated him to send the rainstorms when you needed it. So it was a give and take, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of relationship. If you lived on the coastline of Israel, the worship of the Asherah, of Asherah was important because you were in danger of sea surges that sent seawater past through the protective dunes into your towns and your fields, drowning your crops and your herds. Worship would appease her and obligated her to keep the Mediterranean Sea within its boundaries. Are you concerned about your crops of wheat and barley, your fruit orchards and vineyards? Then worship Dagon, the god of crops, so that you get a good harvest. You worship him, he's going to make sure everything comes out very fruitful. What about your sheep and goats and your cattle? Well, for one, you could always turn to the Egyptian god Api, so that you've got the nanny goats and the ewes that will bear kids and lambs for you. So all very practical, all very pragmatic. It's all about obligation, obligating the gods to do the request of the worshipers. In one sense, you can make them do what you want. You've got control. Who would you rather worship? A false god who you could control by performing a ritual? Or Jehovah, who declares himself sovereign? He asks that we follow his commandments, change our lifestyle, live in that covenant relationship with him, and he will bless us. He promises to bless us. The false gods didn't ask for a change in lifestyle. Just do the ritual and get what you want. Changing a lifestyle, that's hard work. It's diligence. 
Stuff like giving of yourself to your neighbor, telling the truth even when it hurts yourself. Why do that when a little ritual once a week works in your favor? That's what's going on here in the Old Testament. So they went after false gods, the, New Te- the Old Testament passage tells us, and they became false. So what does that look like? How did that happen? Well, let's consider that a little bit. So this false god that you're worshiping because you need rain or protection from sea surges or good crops, and you do the ritual, and the rain doesn't come, and the lambs don't come, and your vineyard has little raisins on the stalks rather than nice plump grapes, what happened? Well, maybe you didn't worship hard enough. Maybe you didn't do the ritual in just the right way. So you need to do it better next time. Now you've got guilt. You're being guilted into doing stuff. Maybe the God you're worshiping isn't um, satisfied because, you know, it's just you there. You don't have your neighbors there, too. He wants more worshipers. So now you go around to your neighbors and say, hey, um, you're, not, you're not there worshiping Dagon with me. Uh, let's get with the program here. So now we're coercing our neighbor to do things that are contrary to what the Lord God has said. We're, we're putting pressure on them. And uh, if they won't get with the program, well, then maybe they need to be taught a lesson. So now we've got the threat of violence. So here's where the Israelites became false in their understanding. Here's where they became destructive to their own selves. That's that's why Israel was being punished, because not only were they ignoring God, in fact, doing against the things, they were actually against their neighbor. Their society was being torn up from the inside because of this this falseness that was coming into their, their attitudes about all of this. And all of this out of the harmless worship of false gods? Really? Is that, is that really what was happening? Yeah. Yeah, that's what's going on. That's what happened. That's, what, that's the chain of events that happens. So let's consider our, our New Testament passage this morning. There's the attitude of obliging, obligating a God carry over into the worship of Christ? I think Jesus tells us it can indeed when you look behind what's going on there in the scripture, those texts there. Jesus tells us there are two kinds of people we should be aware of. Those who are obviously evil and those who are subtly evil. The obviously evil ones you say, Jesus says, just look at their fruits. They may come to you dressed as a sheep. Oh, yeah, they have the right words to say. They use the right phrases. They may talk about, oh, I had my quiet time yesterday or went on a date night with my spouse last week and all those kinds of phrases that seem to indicate, yeah, they know the right words, but then you look at their fruit. What are they doing? Well, those are the obviously evil 
What about those who are the subtly evil? And that's what I want to concentrate on this morning. They're, the subtly evil are a different story. Because what's going on? What are they doing? Well, they're doing the same kinds of things that Jesus did, that the disciples did, that the apostles, as we read in Acts, did. Uh, these are good things that they're doing. And they're being done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not fakery here. So what do we do with that? What's, what's going on? Well, these false worshipers, as I'm going to call them, who claim they did good things for Jesus, they were expecting eternal life as a reward. They must have had the same attitude as the ancient Israelites did who went after those false gods. I do the things I see Jesus doing and the apostles doing, and I'm performing that correctly. I mean, things are happening, right? So therefore, I can obligate Jesus to give me what I want. I want to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. That sounds a whole lot better than the other place. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to obligate God to give me what I want. And Jesus responds with a totally unexpected answer to that attitude. You know, there are preachers you can hear on the radio or cable TV or podcast who are all about making God give you the things you want. Just follow the simple instructions and God will, God must respond to you with what you desire. Is it health? Is it wealth? Is it a happy marriage? Trouble-free children? Success in life? Just follow the instructions. Just follow the, perform the ritual. Usually it seems to involve sending money to the preacher's ministry. Uh, but you can obligate God to give you the goods, what you want. That was the religion of the false gods of ancient times, and it's alive today. The false prophets are selling the same old lie. So that's about the other people. Now we need to think about why is this word here for us? What does this mean to me? What does this mean for me? Do we unconsciously fall into the same lie? When turmoil or crisis hits your life, do you have you said or even thought? Or perhaps you've heard others say something like, I go to church regularly, I give the offering, I have my kids attending youth ministry. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? There's that attitude that if I do the right things, God's obligated to give me a happy life. We think that if we do the right things, then God's obligated to give us Satisfaction, success, comfort. God doesn't work that way. If you've read C.S. Lewis's um, Narnia Chronicles, the first one in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children find themselves in the magical land of Narnia, which at the time is under the control of the White Witch. The children are taken in, protected by Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who have a hope that things will soon change for the better. Mr. Beaver tells the children, he looks around conspiratorially um, in the movie I've seen, and he says, softly, Aslan 
is on the move. Children don't know who Aslan is or what he is. And they have to ask. So Mr. Beaver explains that Aslan is a lion. And someone asked, is he a tame lion? No, says Mr. Beaver, but he's good. Christ is not the tamed lion of Judah. We do not, and we cannot control him, but we can trust him, for he is good. Uh, The false worshipers of Jesus claimed what looked like at first glance to be good things, indicating perhaps that they did believe in Jesus. They prophesied. And that is to be a prophet, to speak forth by divine inspiration, to foretell and foretell God's word. They cast out demons. They did mighty works, which means they're miracles. They are genuine miracles. what What the context is here, though, remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount we're here. This is all in. When Jesus talks about these men, what's missing? What was the message of Jesus? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where in these false worshippers' lives is repent, believe, obey? Where is the prophet Micah's? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Where throughout that Sermon on the Mount are the commands to prophecy, cast out demons, and perform miracles? It's not there. But do we find? We find things like recognizing our own spiritual poverty, mourning over our sins and the sins of the world, being humble and meek, being peacemakers and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. False worshipers don't give any indication that's what's going on in their lives. What's left are those showy aspects of an external belief. And I also think it's one that can promote the individual. Oh, look at him, he's a miracle worker. Or follow her, she's a great preacher. Cause for self-focused adulation and creating fans and having many followers on Twitter and Instagram. Well, what are Jesus' words to these people? He says, depart, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. That should put a chill down our spine when we hear that. Jesus says, I never knew you. You know, contemporary Christianity puts a lot of emphasis on knowing God, knowing Jesus. I mean, how many good churches out there have as their mission statement to know Christ and to make him known? Probably quite a few, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. We should know Jesus, not just know about him. But we overlook a critical aspect, and that is that we should be known by Jesus. How are we to be known by Jesus? It's simple, really. All of those who have been born by the Spirit, who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, and who have come to faith in the person and work of Christ, are known by Him. 
Yeah, is there an aspect of our discipleship, though, that brings that home to us? Our Westminster Confession, chapter 18, on the assurance of grace and salvation, has this to say. Therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. It's about what God has done for us, what he has worked in. And as our confession says, it's up for us to examine ourselves. Are we seeing the fruit of repentance? Are we seeing the fruit of righteousness, of being obedient, and seeing those graces work out in us? Jesus calls the false worshipers workers of lawlessness, It's to do iniquity, to act wickedly, but more than that, it's the practice, the continual day-by-day, week-in, week-out, going-on-forever kind of thing, not just individual acts. It's the guiding principle of these false worshipers to be against the law of God. They're lawless in in this aspect. They're seeking after their own good. They're just mimicking Jesus and the apostles, and they don't have a true conversion in their own hearts. And furthermore, that they are not obedient in the way that Jesus desires. We've been given the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These false worshipers ignored, repent, Believe, obey. They ignored that ministry of word and sacrament. So then, dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be striving after, repent, believe, obey. Finding that we know Jesus and that we are known by him. We see the graces working out in our lives. Let's follow what our confession teaches us to believe the words of Scripture to seek and find in ourselves the fruit of regeneration, the testimony of the Spirit witnessing with our spirit. We bow to God's sovereignty. We find our rest, our comfort, and our joy, our great hope is in Him. We desire to do the things that we may desire to do the things that we see Jesus do, not because we believe we can obligate Him to give us what we desire, but that we may reflect his nature in us because we want to be like him. We want to see those graces work out in our lives that are evident. We have the hope by this that we will hear Jesus say to us on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter enter the joy of our master. Amen. Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, Let the words of your scriptures sink deep into our hearts, into our minds, that you would bless us and that we we would desire more and more each day to see the grace that you've given to us work out in our lives. We become more and more like Christ. So, Father, we ask your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen.